Welcome to the ninth episode of our podcast series, Bridging the Gaps, jointly produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and EHFF, the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Sean O'Conline. Folteroiv Agusmuda Dridim Gudjaran Nablainasha. And I'm Caroline White. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Una Duggan, who is the Head of Advocacy for the Conservation of Birds and Their Habitats at Birdwatch Ireland, and is on the Steering Committee of the Environmental Pillar. And also from Eastgate Britain, who is a prominent and highly skilled surfer, as well as an academic with a PhD in Environment and Society. Topics covered include the current state of biodiversity in Ireland and elsewhere, and the challenges involved in trying to promote state and EU-level policies that protect nature. In our conversation, we also explored some of the links between biodiversity and health, and more generally, the many ways in which our contact with nature, whether on sea or on land, can be beneficial for both our physical and mental health. We started by asking our two guests to say a few words about themselves. So my name is Una Duggan and I am the Head of Advocacy at Birdwatch Ireland. I was born and raised on a dairy farm in County Limerick. And looking at it now, it was probably a small dairy farm compared to some of the ones that we have these days. Growing up on that farm, by the way, which my dad never drained, he never ploughed up, never reseeded. So in a sea of monoculture green around us, that was uh, definitely more of the marginal land, but it still managed to sustain a family back in the 80s and 90s. My first memories of nature as a child was literally walking up the fields and just seeing hares and also with an ant in particular, seeing skylarks and, and other birds that were on the farm, which was just amazing. I went to college in Cork and then went off to America, to California. And that's when I had my aha moment where I decided I want to focus my career on environmental work. I saw them doing curbside recycling and it was the first time I'd seen that. And I said, jeepers, this is making it easy for people to do the right thing. And so when I went back to college to do a master's, which I had deferred, and it was on international development relations, and I decided to learn every single thing I could about sustainable development. And that's where I got my first taste of ecological economics as well. And subsequently, then I started working in California. And so for my entire career has been working for the environment. So for on climate change, working with farmers on water quality, working on fisheries, loads of different things. And for the last six years, specifically working with Birdwatch Ireland on saving our wild bird populations, two thirds of which are in trouble. So that's my job at the moment. That's my path. This is a tough one to follow. <laughs> I grew up in Donegal in Rusnaula, kind of a famous surfing beach and born to surfing parents named after a surfing wave, Eastkey on the west coast of Ireland. Ergo, surfing is a big part of my story as well. Thank goodness I love the sea. <laughs> yeah, so I just grew up in very much having that kind of ocean-minded perspective from a very early age. So that connection with nature that was through the movement of tides, cycles of moon, where I grew up as well in Rasnala on the edge of Dernish Lake is an SAC. So again, really exposed to just that beauty of, of nature. And again, the cycles and the seasons, we have a lot of migratory birds that come in particular in the autumn time. And that's also when the, the autumn swells arrive for surfing. And so just being aware of all those interconnections in my life and then how I fit it in with it is probably perhaps 
no surprise that I'm now within academia anyways, is probably more of a social ecologist. So looking at that real dynamic interplay and relationship with humans in part of nature as nature ourselves. And I studied environmental science as an undergrad after a long career. And I still have a kind of a semi-professional career in surfing, but surfing competitively professionally around the world. And so being in a lot of these places where you're very much immersed in the marine environment. So kind of at the front line of witnessing changes in that environment and ones that were happening very specifically locally and the impact that would have on various people and communities, but also that realizing very quickly it's a very global issue with a real human dimension, and that if we were to follow the approach of trying to exclude people in our attempts to protect or conserve nature, the marine environment, that I think we'd ultimately fail. So I was interested in looking at the interconnections of how people use, engage, interact with the sea how it shapes certain aspects of our culture and society so i'm interested in finding what is it that connects us to these spaces and places and particularly water and the sea but also why is there the disconnect that there is uh, and is there one and of course there isn't for everyone <laughs> i did my phd in kind of marine social science so actually looking at a social well-being approach in, in coastal fishing communities in northern ireland so looking at things like adaptation and resilience at a household level and the impact of a lot of a way of life but again a loss of connection to the sea in that kind of livelihood context um, and then more recently under the last five years in particular it's focused much more on ocean and human health or this notion of blue space or blue health so looking at again the more healing and restorative benefits of being on in or near water i was gonna say Iski, we have um, a marine connection as well i go swimming every morning mm. at half seven here here in bray with a group of people so I'm determined to keep it up over the winter. Oh, and you should. It's amazing. That, I know. Uh, I'm loving yeah. it. Delighted to hear. Because I've had this lifelong connection with surfing. But, you know, you're all clad in, in your wetsuit. And so there is that element of comfort. But it's a total different immersion with the sea swimming. And I've kind of come back to it in my adulthood after being mad about it when I was a child. Falling out of love with it through competitive swimming <laughs> kind of killed it for me. But yeah, it's coming back to it more recently myself. And it's incredible. And then I'm fascinated in the research that's coming out on the effect that has on us on so many levels. The health benefits of it and the awareness I suppose that you see when you're out in the sea, like there was a couple of occasions this summer when we couldn't swim because the water quality deteriorated due to pollution and bacterial content. And we were so disappointed. It was, it was really hard to stay away and very disappointing. That's such an important point, too, because I think it's for me, it's like the more we kind of restore that connection and love and experience in a positive way, in a really immersive, embodied way, like, say, swimming or with being in nature and in those environments and places, especially our local ones. I think then it also wakes that up in us, also the responsibility and recognizing and seeing and just not being okay with these places becoming degraded or polluted because there is a direct connection. I think if that connection isn't there, who is going to care, you know? And so there is a real need as, as this awakening happens of more and more people, certainly during this pandemic, being drawn and pulled to the sea and especially I'm seeing it with sea swimming. It's wonderful. And the flip side, of course, is also then 
what is really good for our health can be a negative for our health if we don't care for those places. And Birdwatch Ireland, we saw a 500% increase in traffic to our websites during the pandemic, the first lockdown, because everybody was looking at birds in the garden and in the fields and wanting to learn more about it. And it really provided a balm, I think, for people during that, especially the first lockdown, you know, the shock of it all. And having more time to stop and look and see what's around you uh, was really wonderful for people. Yeah, Una, you, you mentioned you've just recently been reading a book called Sustaining Life, How Human Health Depends on Biodiversity by Eric Shivian and Eric Bernstein. Uh, could you give us a few impressions about that? Because that kind of links in with what you've just been saying. Yeah, it's an incredible book. I highly recommend people can get their hands on a copy. It's quite a tome, but it's basically a book written by scientists in Harvard Medical School doctors and scientists that were commissioned by the United Nations Environment Programme to produce this. And it starts with the basics about the variety of life and then goes into the various ways that human health is dependent on biodiversity, covering medicines that we derive from trees, plants, amphibians, and then onto the materials, but also then the connection between disease and how healthy environments, healthy ecosystems are critical to maintain Uh, healthy human populations. They have some examples, particularly in Africa, where entire villages and towns got infected with terrible parasites and they traced back the problem. They had dammed a river and it changed the aquatic environment and the populations of particular snails. And then the people ended up getting sick. And it's just really interesting to see how delicate the balance is actually and how human interventions can have very significant changes. So I was reading the chapter on zoonosis and zoonotic diseases, and it has a table in there of all the different diseases that have come from animals to humans and the reasons for those, a lot of them being environmental change, not of the positive kind. And it's just gobsmacking, especially now that we're in a pandemic. And I know that's not clear 100% what the cause is, but the industrial farming has been cited as well as the trade in wildlife and the jump then potentially of this virus from wildlife to humans. So it's an astounding book. Even the description that I think it's Taxol, the chemotherapy drug, comes from the yew tree, which is phenomenal. But I've not finished the book yet. And it's absolutely, I mean, it's it's like a little Bible now. It's amazing. So highly recommend it. I jump in. and It's partially on the same tack, but I think, Iski, you describe yourself as a social ecologist with a particular emphasis on the sea. In Ireland, we maybe have taken the sea for granted. I'm very interested in as somebody who's come from surfing where you're actually in the sea. We've also talked about almost being part of nature. I'd love to hear your thoughts, particularly on Ireland as an island and how we relate to the sea itself. Yeah, I mean, I find it fascinating. I think there's so much to be learned and I'd love to explore it more in terms of our ancestral connections with water and the sea, in particular in Ireland. I mean, it plays such a huge role when it comes to healing, connection, spirituality. If you even look at in terms of like water with how many sacred sites are around water wells, lakes, rivers, and in the mythology that places of water hold, the very potent places of stories. So it it really, like for water for me, and in particular, I think in the Irish psyche and culture really is a powerful place of memory as well. 
And then the sea is an interesting one in Ireland. Surfing kind of having changed the narrative in a way, but let's just take a step back for a moment and look at where we're situated on the kind of fringe, as it were, in this edge space with the wild Atlantic. It is so raw and wild and powerful and extremely dangerous. So it's also been a site of fear and risk and loss for a very long time. So that's a very powerful narrative that's still there. And then with surfing, it's an interesting shift happens. You know, because surfing is kind of relatively new in the scene in Ireland. My dad and his brothers being some of the first surfing pioneers in the Northwest in the 60s. And, and my mother surfed through her teenage years. She would profess that it was her lifeline in those transition years when you're becoming a woman in Ireland. It was a lovely form of self-connection and escapism, I suppose, for her. So it has all those kinds of qualities I can get into as well. But I think with surfing, because it's the inherent element is also one of play. It's, it's also a competitive sport, but at its core, at its essence, it's this wonderful immersion in a very kind of powerful environment where we're, we're taking ourselves intentionally out of our comfort zone into this space where we're kind of stable and secure on land and into the, the sea. And it's kind of almost like an act of surrender, a real sense of trust. And there's a lot of kind of I suppose a buildup and layers of ocean knowledge that gets accumulated. The longer you surf, the more you're in the sea. And the same goes for swimming, that knowledge of local spots and safe spots for swimming and the best spots for certain kinds of waves. So again, it, it sort of restores this kind of knowledge and connection to the sea in a different way that has a more positive framing as well. And then it sort of amplifies that story of our connection with the sea as an important place of play and well-being and recreation for our health as well as to be feared. <laughs> so I think that can only be a positive. There's a connotation, it's a very profound in mythology and sacredness and mystery about the sea being a deep feminine place. It's almost like the womb. I find it fascinating because, and I've had some several conversations and I explored in my own work and writing as well, of the sea and water, of course, being a really sort of potent feminine element with those inherent qualities. And then yet surfing often gets framed as this sort of extreme adventure sport, big wave surfing. And so then there's, of course, the more masculine qualities of even if you hear, you know, sports commentators and surfing of kind of dominating the wave, smashing it or... <laughs> When you hear, listen to most surfers speak of their experience, it does tend to be the more feminine off about uh, entering a flow state, the sense of presence, almost surrendering to this force that's greater than you, riding energy waves, and then this sense of, I suppose, being in the moment that happens when you're putting yourself in that environment of the seats. It's just a wonderful way to be, you know, actively mindful. To me, it feels more like a union of those more masculine feminine forces rather than them being at odds. So yeah, there's a lot of life lessons to be had, I think, from the seat. Thanks, Iski. It's something Una mentioned to us, this notion of being a part of nature and loving nature. At the same time, there's this notion of taking care of it and even standing up against the wrongdoings maybe of society or of others. And I know part of probably what the two you're doing is actually your activists or your maybe fighting campaigns. I'd love to hear from you, Una, particularly about what your involvement in those types of defensive or proactive actions and particularly about biodiversity. Indeed. So I've, I'm an advocate, I suppose, and an activist. So we work at a kind of a strategic level trying to influence policy because if we don't have the right policies in place, then we won't be able to address the issues that we are seeing on land and sea um, in relation to biodiversity. Um, 
But certainly the love of nature kind of drives me and it's where I feel alive being out in the sea in the morning or my favorite thing is lying in a field of wildflowers especially in Leitrim where I do a lot of botany I go up and we do a lot of plant recording in Leitrim but lying in a field of wildflowers with the the crickets and the other insects around it's like a little mini forest it's very diverse place to be and so I suppose that love comes with some pain, I suppose, looking at the losses that we're witnessing in terms of numbers. I mean, you know, we can look at the international reports, especially that came out last year, about one million species threatened with extinction globally. And we can see all the pictures of rainforest loss and the Amazon loss. We have deteriorating biodiversity here. We have suffered catastrophic losses in farmland birds, like curlew, corncrake, Yellowhammer, Lapwing, the list goes on. And so I suppose I don't feel like I can sit back and just let this happen. For some reason, I, I, I have a very strong urge to be part of the solution and to be part of the messaging that we need to act. And so between working at a strategic level, which I must say doesn't really work that well, because if it had over the last 10, 15 years, we wouldn't be in the place we are. So now I'm thinking more and more the direct action and even going to the courts is the only way that the state here seems to be responding. You know, the courts say that you're not actually achieving what you said you were going to achieve. Now we're going to make a ruling on it and you have to abide by the ruling. It's the last resort and it shouldn't be that way. But what I do see is a huge kind of shift in the public thinking about nature. The fact that birds and wildlife are contained in our poetry and our songs and music over the centuries in Ireland. And especially when you look at the Book of Kells and you see all the illustrations, birds in particular, but other, other species too, that is indicative of the integration of where nature has had a place in our lives or how we've had a place in nature. And I feel like there's been a big gap maybe of about 40, 50 years. And I think we're rediscovering that connection and we're also seeing the the losses and wanting to do something about it. So a few years ago, we were campaigning against changes to legislation, changes to the basic legislation for breeding birds. And it would have weakened the legislation, the heritage bill it was, but we had a huge response to our petition to stop this. I mean, it was the largest petition ever seen for nature in Ireland. 30,000 signatures is not insignificant in an Irish context. It really was indicative to me that there's a shift. And particularly then in the last two years, we've seen that develop more and more with the Fridays for Future and Greta Thunberg and others campaigning for nature. So this is the place we're in now that we have to campaign for it, enjoying it, experiential learning, being in it, you know, having somebody maybe explain what that bird is or what that flower is, is really helpful to connect with people. But we have to fight for it too. Some of our most recent policy activity, and, you know, we've been working on it for the last two years, is the reform of the common agricultural policy. The cap is worth 386 billion in the EU budget, so it's over one third of the EU budget, which is huge. And how that money is spent is really important. And unfortunately, there was a big vote in the European Parliament and we're not very pleased with the outcome because what we should be doing is preparing for this decade of action out to 2030 to address 
climate change and to halt and reverse biodiversity loss. We've missed all of our 2020 targets. So, you know, we need to be putting in place now the steps that will get us to 2030 and what we need to achieve. So the cap lasts for seven years. And this is why it's such an important policy to try and influence now. So we had a Speak Up for Nature campaign where we had lots of farmers out saying what they wanted for the cap, a cap to support them so that they could support nature. It was was fantastic, but unfortunately, there was a lot of vested interests that have an awful lot more money than any NGO in Ireland, I can tell you, where even the, the big farming unions in Europe get a meeting with the president of the Council of Ministers before each meeting. And then they walk in and, you know, NGOs, we asked for this opportunity and we were denied it. So it's a very one-way street when it comes to access and privilege and power and who has the power. The smaller NGOs, we have the power of the people, I think, and maybe moral, being on the right side, but it's very tricky. But it's not all done and dusted yet. Greta Thunberg and Fighters for Future are on board and they're calling for the cap to be withdrawn. So we're not over yet. And turn back to Iske just for a second. Iske, you've been involved in a very recent mm-hmm. publication, the Connecting with Nature for Health and Wellbeing, I think as a coordinating author. I'd love to hear just your perspective on that document. What were your own thoughts on how you became involved in it and uh, mm. how would you like to see it being taken up or used? And maybe you might explain what exactly is the document. Yeah, well, it, just a step back, it's part of the Near Health Project. So Near Health stands for looking at ways that nature and environment can help us attain and restore health. It was joint funded by the EPA and HSE in Ireland, among with some other projects. And I was part of a research team at NUI Galway. The project leader is ecologist Katrina Carlin, and I also worked alongside Geisha Kinderman and many others. What was interesting about the project was I've been invested in it for the last three to five years. And the outcome now is this connecting with nature for health and well-being toolkit and a report but it also represents, I guess, a body of work that was very co-creative, hundreds of people contributing to this, trying to understand the story in Ireland of how people value nature in the context of their health and well-being, first and foremost. So it's the first sort of national study of its kind looking at that and then looking at, well, what are sort of the barriers and bridges to connecting with nature and in particular locally in our own places? And then what are different communities' visions for a healthy future environment and what might be some of the actions we could take and coming up with actual election plans for different areas around the country? as well as looking at the ways of like then how to engage and reconnect through various activities and then how do we capture and understand how they benefit our health and well-being so that restorative value for really diverse groups so for people across the life course with different disabilities or recovery from illness as well as general kind of health promotion and what was really interesting out of that is it captures a real I suppose diversity of stories, like what's universally shared. So this notion of, yes, we do really value, people value nature for their health and well-being in Ireland. You know, intuitively we're drawn to it. We go to it because it's where we feel calmer. We know it alters our mood. All the science and evidence backs that up as well, the stories too. But what was also coming out was this notion that despite that kind of knowing and maybe those kind of strong childhood memories of that connection to nature, that somehow along the way we've forgotten how to listen to nature and what to look for Mm. as if we've stopped noticing i'm paraphrasing a quote from one of our participants that was coming up kind of again and again so this 
almost this acknowledgement of when we're given the chance or moment to reflect on it, recognizing this loss, that this separation and duality that's happened. So we've got so caught up in our sort of busy default mode and patterns of busyness and of life, in particular in how, I suppose, in our more Western version of society, almost the disconnect had grown so great that some people, there was then now a sense of almost fear or of not feeling safe or of not understanding or knowing how to engage when they're outdoors in a sort of meaningful way or a safe way or a respectful way. But what was really positive was just that looking at how I suppose across the board, how being in nature facilitates, especially in the time of this pandemic, greater social cohesion and connectedness. So it was like this facilitator for connection by simply taking ourselves outside or taking ourselves, you could flip it either way. Some people think that we leave nature and go outside outside of nature when we go into our homes and our buildings and our (laughs) built dwellings. So this kind of sense of a return and to put it in context, we're living in a society where, you know, there's studies coming out saying that children spend less time outdoors engaged in nature than prisoners in solitary confinement. And we know how good it is for us because studies are showing how even the difference of having some green space and trees in a community can dramatically decrease crime rates or mental health issues. And it's no wonder that if we're in this very concrete, square, harsh environment without any of those natural sounds that we've evolved with, because we're part of it, that of course Mm -hmm. we're going to feel at the very least irritated, frustrated, anxious. And so the answer also lies by greater exposure to nature. But some of the really powerful entry points or points of reconnection is actually through citizen science. So there's huge potential we found in in the Near Health Project to integrate pro-environmental actions and healthcare and active living approaches. So the real need and huge opportunity in Ireland to build those partnerships across the health and environment and conservation sectors and sport by in particular adopting this sort of citizen science or even citizen arts-based approaches with existing outdoor activities. So linking, for example, the National Physical Activity Plan with Birdwatch Ireland, with the you know, National Biological Diversity, you know, the database we have. And so we looked at things like beach cleans and bat monitoring and activities like that. And so there's a, they have profound potential to really create a sense of social cohesion and connection as well as connection to nature and pro-environmental actions. I'm excited by the possibilities and that we have at a national level bodies like EPA and HSE having this conversation and recognizing that nature isn't some add-on. It shouldn't just be a frill, that it's absolutely integral to how we look at all of these issues, in particular when it comes to our health and in particular at the moment of a pandemic. Uh, When I say our health, I mean our health as humans, but also with all the other species. I was just thinking when Una was speaking of what would happen if we gave daily counts of bird losses and the loss of other species, if we're going down that road. With the environmental pillar, we've been working a little bit with the OECD, Mm -hmm. trying to advise the Department of Public Expenditure in Ireland about their targets for their budgeting and how they should be measuring success and the way they budget for things and it was it's been very interesting to look at the way other countries do it like New Zealand for example one of the things that they measure is how close people live to green space and how easy the access they have to parks and green space so what you were saying there about the connection with mental health was very interesting because it really ties in with that so that was one of the things we suggested be added in actually um, yeah yeah and it's huge and you do have other examples of it like New Zealand for one but you know 
know, even in the Chicago city government spent $10 million to plant 20,000 trees. Um, so the rare moment of civic investment in nature, recognizing the value of it in terms of crime rates and health impact. And, and so it comes back to these different ways of valuing nature, but also the issue of how we communicate and create spaces for that collaboration and partnership building. When do we ever have the Department of Justice, Department of Health and Department of Environment all getting together and joining forces yeah. on the issue of trees, for example, yeah. or water quality. <laughs> Could I just ask Iski, in your experience being out on the water, how would you rate an understanding of the health of the marine ecosystems and, for instance, overfishing? Or do you think there's ways that it's possible to connect more with people and their understanding of, I suppose, not just even feeling the water and the power of it, but actually seeing, like, for instance, on the East Coast, it's a bit of a dead zone in terms of aquatic life. Oh, it's such a brilliant question. Take, for example, surfing and water sports in Ireland, and it's rapidly growing. And yet again, the approach is part because of funding mechanisms. It's very focused on sport, recreation, tourism, physical activity, maybe at best health. And I think we're really missing a beat there. We don't integrate that ecological knowing and understanding as a part of learning how to surf. I mean, I grew up with it because it was a way of life in our family household. But how might that be part of the curriculum of the training of surf instructors and how you teach surfing is you're also learning about the principles of ocean literacy, learning about the local ecology and how it's changing, as well as actions that we can take locally because I think we're very much at the stage of we know what we need to do now we need to focus on those solutions <laughs> and I feel there's a huge opportunity there because there's such a big and growing community and there's already that connection and excitement and love of the sea emerging because people are discovering something through this new connection through surfing or swimming and it's a perfect moment I think to then bring in this sense of responsibility that comes with that sense, that feeling that the sea has just given you uh, and that's where we really need to look at how and in what ways can we create that culture of reciprocity through these experiences that we're having of what's happening again goes back to really getting to know your local space your own body of water you know when you walk by the beach to really bring back that more curious mindset we had as kids in particular right get exploring the rock pools again and what's there and notice what's absent thank you that's really interesting and you've touched on something the whole area of cultural memory the fact that a lot of people these days will never have heard of a corn crake, uh, know what a corn crake sounds like. We have to try and remember the missing bit that will help us restore populations, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. You know, indigenous leaders have said, and, and certainly one of my favorite writers, Robin Wall Kimmer, again, going back to that culture of reciprocity, she says, if we restore the land, we restore ourselves. And I feel the same applies for water. If we restore the water, we restore ourselves. Love it. <laughs> that was Eastkey Britain and Una Duggan talking about the challenges in influencing policy so as to protect nature and the relationship between physical and mental health and access to nature. Please tune in for our next podcast at the end of December. And in the meantime, if you like our podcasts, please help spread the word about them by sharing them on social media. Many thanks to our interviewees, Eastkey Britain and Una Duggan, for participating in this month's podcast. And thanks as ever to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp.